these sorts of views are, you know, I suppose render me unfit to be a, a medical practitioner and, and um, that I had to be suspended uh, in the public interest is the way, the way they put it. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. I have a very special guest with me today, Dr. Jareth Cock. He is an Australian medical practitioner. He's been a doctor over here for 15 years and he has a shocking story to tell, which is exactly why I wanted him to come on today, not only to hear his story, but to hear his expertise. Jareth was sadly uh, suspended from practicing medicine a couple of years ago, all because of social media posts, not because of a complaint from a patient, not because of any medical negligence that, that anybody can point to, but purely because of his thoughts and opinions online. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Jareth. Hi, it's great to be with you, Evelyn. Now you have a story to tell. I sort of briefly went into it, but man, I was reading some of the things that you've spoken about, about what's happened to you, the discrimination you've suffered. Um, and I'm appalled as an Australian citizen, I'm reading this going, I can't believe this is happening in my own country. So I wanted to have you on. I wanted to hear your side of the story. And for people who might not be familiar with you, can you sort of talk us through what led to you being suspended as a doctor over here? What led to me being suspended? Okay, that's a, a long story, but I'll try to try to keep it short. Um, uh, I was uh, uh, working uh, in general practice uh, over the last ten years or so um, prior to my suspension. So I, um, uh, yeah, I'd been a doctor in total about fifteen years, and um, then moved into general practice, uh, and and that's where I was, and. Um, what happened uh, was that uh, over a couple of years, um, two people who I don't know, I don't know who they are, they, their identities have been kept secret, um, but they're not, they're not people I've ever met, uh, made a couple of complaints to APRA. So APRA is the, you know, the governing body of health professionals um, saying that they'd uh, taken notice of, of things that I've written uh, online such as Facebook, um, uh, yeah, and they take an exception to things that, you know, they regarded as politically incorrect and, and, and so on, um, which then led to uh, an APRA investigation. Um, they hired their own private investigators to trawl through years and years and years of online content. They dug up things from as far back as uh, 2010, so, you know, we're talking 12 years ago now, um, they, they dug things up from Bill Muhlenberg's blog. Bill Muhlenberg's a, uh, he's a blogger, a Christian commentator. He's located here in Melbourne with me and, you know, I know him personally as well. So I'd, um, back in the sort of, um, I suppose this was probably the pre-Facebook era um, yeah. when everyone had blogs instead of using things like Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> so I, um, you know, I, I used to, Back in the day, I, I was a reader of his blog and I would, uh, every now and again, you know, I'd join in the, the, the discussions and comments there and, and I'd have my say on a few things. And, you know, we're talking things like um, uh, moral topics like abortion, uh, gay marriage, you know, so back, this is back in sort of 2010, that sort of time when, when, when gay marriage wasn't legalised and it was being debated and, um, you know, so we'd get into all that. And... Um, they found all of that material. These private investigators um, dug up 
2,000 pages of stuff <laughs> and um, a lot of it was from Bill Millenberg's blog. So I imagine some poor APRA person had to sit there and read through 2,000 pages of Bill's blog, getting, uh, getting triggered by all sorts of conservative opinions and whatnot. <laughs> and yeah, anyway, but the, yeah, so they, they, they sort of um, extracted comments I'd made from there. Things you know, about these sorts of topics, uh, same-sex marriage and 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 um, the morality of sexuality and abortion, yeah. um, euthanasia, and uh, they essentially said that having expressed these views um, out there on on Bill's blog, on on my own Facebook page as well as uh, in an Eternity News article, which I wrote a few years back. Um, these sorts of views are, you know, I suppose render me unfit to be a, a medical practitioner and, and um, that I had to be suspended uh, in the public interest is the way, the way they put it. Um, uh, so that, that, that suspension happened um, 2019 now, so we almost sort of uh, three years ago. Um, and I've been sitting here essentially waiting for the matter to be resolved. Um, the, the way they suspended me was through, um, I guess, emergency powers. So these are powers that exist for APRA to um, deal with a doctor or nurse or whatever who's perceived to be a, a serious risk, a danger. Um, to remove them immediately before any kind of thorough investigation or thorough trial, um, just to make sure that, you know, they're, they're keeping people safe from someone who's dangerous. That's what they're designed for. Mm. So if you've you know, got a doctor who's practising very dangerously or risky or is incompetent, um, they can be removed instantly um, and then, you know, sort of shoot first, ask questions later, and, you know, then they can, yeah. the investigation can happen later. So that's what they did, and I'm waiting now. Um, and I've been waiting for two and a half, going on three years, uh, for that actual process of, of investigation to, to reach some kind of resolution. Um, and I know it's going to reach a resolution. Well, you know, I, I'm, I understand it's going to happen this year. There's going to be some uh, a, a trial in a, in, a, in a court, essentially, a tribunal. Um, and that, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Um, uh, I think, um, you know, as, as far as I'm aware, uh, while it's taken this length of time um, for anything to happen, that's not because they've been actively doing anything. That's just because that's the nature of bureaucracy. Things just get put on a shelf and um, they get left there and then they get busy with other things and then eventually they remember that my file is there and we'll get around to dealing with it now. Mm. That must have been pretty hard for you and your family. I'm guessing you're a family man. Um, since you've been suspended, is that suspended without pay? Like what's sort of that? Are you without income whilst you're sort yeah. of waiting for this inquiry? So I'm not allowed to... Uh, I'm not allowed to call myself a doctor or practice as a doctor or medical practitioner. So I'm not allowed to do any kind of medical work. It's very, very broad. Um, uh, you know, I can uh, I can go get a job, uh, uh, you know, stacking shelves or whatever else if, if I want to, but I'm not allowed to work in any kind of medical field 
which which requires a medical qualification. So, yeah, look, that that was what I was trained for for many years and experienced in and built up all the skills in. Um, and I had a practice. I had a few hundred patients who um, were my regular sort of patients who relied on me. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't I couldn't look after them anymore. Um, and it was, hard, it was definitely hard on us because it meant a sudden um, my income was suddenly cut off. And it's not a sort of situation where your boss fires you, well, you go find another job with another employer. I couldn't go to any employer that be employed because I wasn't allowed to practice anywhere in Australia. So um, it leaves you with no options. Uh, so it was hard on us as a family. Um, having, having the income suddenly cut off, um, we were a single-income family. Um, uh, but, you know, I also... The, the thing that really makes me personally most angry is is the effect it had on my patients because I looked after all these all these patients and um you know the way that patients come to rely on on their doctor who's known them for many many years and they they confided in you and you know their whole story you know their whole background you know every medication they're taking and you know every surgery they've ever had and you've got this intimate knowledge and um and they want to be able to see you whenever they want, whenever they need help or a new prescription or whatever. And um, people find it hard to, you know, <laughs> a lot of doctors, I think, feel guilty even about taking annual leave, right? Even taking two weeks off because it means, oh, my patients won't be able to contact me. There's this real sense of duty towards these people and, um, even even taking two weeks off can be really really hard for some patients who are extremely dependent on you. And so, um, uh, you know, for me, it's not I'm taking two weeks off. It's uh, it's it's suddenly being removed altogether, and um, without any sort of explanation to them, without any forewarning. So it came out of literally out of the blue. Uh, I was told on a Friday afternoon that you're going to be suspended. And then by the next Thursday, I was suspended, so, you know, in, in four business days. And so there was no opportunity to wrap things up, hand things over, explain to patients what was going on. It was just a sudden disappearance. And a lot of them had no idea where I'd gone. All of them had no idea where I'd gone. Uh, they weren't, you know, able to be given any kind of sensible explanation. And, um, and, and I think that, well, I know that was very hard for many, many of them. What um, was the transition like, Jareth? Like when, when you, when you were suspended, um, yeah. what actually happens like to those patients? Is there, is, is there sort of a, an, a shift of responsibility or onus on those hundreds of patients that you were serving? Because basically the Australian medical board have removed you. Do they then mm. have to take responsibility for organizing treatment and care of those patients that were under you? Uh, no, 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 that, that's not something that they assume responsibility for. Now, I was very, very fortunate in, this, in that I worked in a group practice. So I worked with, um, you know, a dozen other doctors, which meant that all the, you know, all of the copious notes that I'd written and on, on file for all those patients were in a, in a computer system, which the other doctors could access. And that sort of would have helped the other doctors to you know, they would have had to sort of wade through wade through pages and pages of notes to sort of get their heads around these patients, but at least they were able to do that, I suppose. Um, 
you know, there, there are some more recent instances of uh, APRA suspending doctors who were solo practitioners. Mm, that'd be that difficult. makes it very, very hard, yeah, because, um, mm. you know, then these people, they can't just rock up to the clinic that they're used to going to. They have to find another clinic and then somehow have medical notes transferred across and, you know, that would be a, yeah. a real nightmare. But fortunately in my case it meant, well, we can see another doctor at the clinic. That doctor has access mm. to the notes that Jared's written uh, and the history and that, you know, so that, so there is. It assisted a bit, yeah. Th- there is some sort of continuity there, yeah, yeah. But mm. that's, you know, that's through yeah. circumstances. That's not because the APRA system takes any kind of responsibility mm. for, for the ongoing care of these patients. That's just, uh, yeah, that's that's up to my, that was up to my clinic and, and the patients themselves to, to make arrangements. Hmm. Now, at the beginning, you sort of mentioned that um, there were two people who were anonymous to you, who, I guess, made these complaints. Now, are you on social media publicly as a doctor, like on your Facebook page or when you wrote the piece for Eternity News or on Bill Muhlenberg's thing? Did you stipulate in those things that you were a practicing doctor, et cetera, et cetera, or were you just Jareth, the human being, like the rest of <laughs> yeah. us giving your opinion on something? Yeah. Um, my, my Facebook page has always been a personal page, so yeah. it uh, doesn't list any, it doesn't list my title as a doctor, it doesn't list any credentials, it doesn't list any, any sort of qualifications or um, anything like that. And I don't, you know, I don't speak there as a doctor, I don't give medical advice. That's a, it's a personal page that I use like everyone else does. You know, I share photos of uh, photos of uh, things that I've seen, or, you know, that I've taken and, and, and whatnot. It's, it's entirely personal. Um, likewise, you know, when I've interacted on Bill Millenberg's blog, for instance, that's, that's personal as well. That's, that's not with some kind of uh, title or qualifications after my name. Um, so the, the, the exception is the Eternity News article. So about um, 2015, which is when um, the, uh, you know, Bruce slash Caitlin Jenner thing happened and, and the whole transgender topic exploded in the world. Um, uh, I uh, wrote an article. It was actually a response to somebody else um, that I wrote and um, uh, it was giving a perspective as a Christian and as a, you know, someone with a, a personal background in medical practice uh, on this topic of somebody changing uh, changing gender from, from Bruce to Caitlin. Um, and in that article, um, you know, I, I was identified there. You know, I, I'm a medical practitioner. I, I, um, I have medical experience and I know a few things about giving hormones and so on. So that, you know, I think that was, that was different. That was, uh, yeah, I, w- I wasn't speaking for the profession. I wasn't speaking on behalf of the entire medical profession giving a, an official point of view. I was still speaking as an individual, but, um, you know, it was a, in a sense wearing wearing a doctor's hat um but yeah look the, the the personal stuff on facebook that's all just that's just all personal none of that uh, none of that is um in any kind of professional capacity at all mm. so in a nutshell you as a human being gave your opinion and in one particular piece gave your expert opinion and one could deem you as an expert more than myself because you have the qualifications you have the lived experience the worked experience so you as a person expressed mm. your opinion on something and was 
suspended from practicing medicine because mm. of it. Have I got that right? That's basically um, it in a nutshell. Yeah, look, I'm aware that um, after that Eternity News article got published, I'm aware that um, because that was sort of fairly public, I suppose, unlike my Facebook page, which is really only looked at by my friends, um, that, that article, you know, being an eternity gets more circulation. So um, I, I'm aware that I, I was sort of targeted by activists after that, that a couple of people took notice and, and sort of um, decided that they wanted to take me down. Um, I, I didn't notice at the time, but I've sort of since learned that that's what happened. And I suppose that these anonymous activists then uh, started to kind of, they found me on Facebook and started to monitor things I was saying there. Um, you know, and some things there I share private, or most things I share probably privately, but then a few things I share publicly, you know, especially when I'm just sharing an article or something like that. Um, and, and over a couple of years, they were able to accumulate enough material um, uh, about my opinions on things like transgenderism um, to say, well, you know, this is this is someone who's spouting uh, politically incorrect views and so on, and they were able to decided to, to try and get me through the APRA system. So they made the complaint. That, that's what I assume happened. Can you sort of explain to me and to people who might be listening what your views are on that gender subject? Because um, obviously people are accusing you of something. I'd love to hear what it is that you actually said. Um, yeah, look, <laughs> you mentioned, you know, I guess you said I was offering an expert opinion. I mean, you could say that in a sense, but you don't have to be an expert to know human biology. You know, you just need um, high school biology to know that there are things, there are, there are chromosomes and male and female. We're born with one set of chromosomes or the other in, in the vast majority of cases, and, and, uh, and, and that determines whether we, we end up male or female, and, and, and that's, you know, part of our reproductive system and reproductive capacity, and it's, uh, it's hardwired. You know, it, uh, this is the sort of thing that, that, that I've um, sort of been defending, you know, uh, against, the, against the ideology that says it's fluid and we can just pick whatever we want to be and change our pronouns and name overnight. Um, so yeah, look, it's it's simply these common sense things things which everybody believed up until five years ago that uh, if you're born a boy, then you're a boy. If you're born a girl, you're a girl. It, it, it's something that uh, um, you, you just observe by looking at a baby. As soon as they're born, you know they're you know in, in the vast majority of cases, you know they're a boy, they're or they're a girl, and you name them accordingly and raise them accordingly, and um, when they grow up. Um, you know, that, that's that's how everything functions and, and it's uh, not really controversial. You don't have to be a medical professional to understand <laughs> the difference between a boy and a girl um, and the fact that you can't change from one to the other and the fact that there aren't 53 other genders. You know, there are actually only two um, when it comes to reality. So, you know, it's... it's expressing my points of view about about these matters and, and particularly as a Christian um, whilst it is biological reality as, as from a Christian point of view um, you know it's very clear cut in scripture and in, in, in the account of, of, of uh, how God creates us that we are male and female um, 
and uh, that these are categories which have been um, defined by our creator and they're not uh, they're not the sort of thing that we determine ourselves and that we can uh, chop and change uh, as we wish and, and and that you know blurring these blurring these distinctions between uh, between the sexes the genders is is something that is regarded as uh, sinful in in the Bible so um, yeah it's 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 essentially that's the kind of thing that um, that's gotten me in, into this trouble and the uh, one of you know one of the main allegations that they have made that, that APRA have made is that I am contradicting the um, you know the accepted medical consensus or the accepted practice of the profession which is which is that you can change people from one gender to the other and in saying that you can't I'm contradicting that and undermining you know undermining the undermining the the the, the, uh, the wider view of the, the profession I suppose that's 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 what they're up that's what they're going to argue hmm. so in Australia um, I know I know in Ireland um, when late-term abortions came in there was a big sort of um, upset because the ability for a medical practitioner or a nurse etc um, was basically stripped away from them they they had no choice because abortions were now made available in a public health system like a hospital um, and so there was a lot of uh, Christian doctors and nurses who said that's unfair because you know as a Christian I can't perform an abortion mm. and I'd like to have the choice as a doctor or nurse whether I do that or not. Mm. Is it similar in Australia or is it as a doctor, you have to do basically what you said, if somebody wants to transition, you have to do it. Or is there things in place for you as an individual doctor to say, no, I don't want to do that. Um, and then you can maybe refer them on to a different doctor. Like how does that process work over here? Yeah, look, that's, that's a very good question, Evelyn. Um, I would have to be honest and say that, it isn't entirely clear what the answer to that question is. So on the one hand, if you look at the medical um, practitioner's code of conduct, there is a clause in there which says that you can be a conscientious objector. So if there's some, um, if there's some kind of procedure that you are uncomfortable with and that you have a moral or philosophical objection to, you don't have to participate in it. So, for instance, um, you know, thinking back before all of this gender stuff, you know, there might have been some uh, doctors from a, a, a particular from particular Christian traditions, Roman Catholicism, for instance, who um, would object to things like IVF, uh, artificial uh, reproductive technologies, such as such as IVF, and even in some cases contraception. Um, Certain Christian traditions uh, regard that as impermissible. So, um, if you were a, a, a strict Roman Catholic doctor, um, these conscientious objection clauses supposedly exist to give you a way out of having to do those sorts of procedures, and and you won't suffer. In theory, you won't suffer any kind of professional repercussions for for saying I don't do IVF, I don't do. I don't prescribe contraception. So those clauses exist. But um, on the other hand, we seem to be 
moving into a um, territory where even even expressing objections to these things gets you in trouble. So, um, you know, if, if you were to read these conscientious objection clauses, well, it, it should say that as a doctor, I don't have to help somebody transition their gender. I don't have to prescribe them hormones to become, um, you know, to pretend to become the other the other sex. But um, but that could then open you up to a complaint and that could then lead to, you know, um, uh, allegations that you, you've been discriminatory or something like that. And it, it really isn't clear. Um, you know, I was <laughs> I was fortunate that I never in practice um, faced a, a direct request from someone about changing gender. So I never had somebody come to me and ask me to, to send them on to have their, their, their gender changed. Um, but having said that, other doctors have, even some of my colleagues have, uh, some of the people I worked with at my clinic. So, in, in fact, um, there was uh, one instance where one of, the, one of the doctors at my clinic told us a story of, of parents who brought in their young child who, you know, I think we're talking about a child who's four or five or six or so, very, very young, you know, just starting school, um, wanting to be wanting to be the opposite gender and 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 being uh given that request from the parents to send them to the to the local gender clinic um and she was faced with that so it's something that does happen i was fortunate never to have faced that um personally i mean if i, if I kept practicing then probably as you know sooner or later it would have happened and then you'd be faced with this dilemma of well how do i manage this now on paper, it might seem that you couldn't politely decline and say this is not something that I agree with or this is something that's against my principles. I don't think it's a good idea and I don't think it's medically a good idea either. Um, you'll have to speak to another doctor um, about it, uh, you know, and that could include just booking with one of the other doctors who works here. Um, in theory, that, that would be how it might work. But in practice, you can imagine it could lead to a complaint you know, we've been discriminated against, we've been uh, judged, we've been, um, uh, you know, made to feel, uh, you know, this doctor has uh, uh, made us uh, feel that we are of less worth or something like that. Uh, that could then, you know, that, that would go to APRA, they could then investigate you um, and, uh, you know, you could end up in some kind of trouble for that and, and certainly, you know, if I can get in trouble just for saying on, Facebook that that people shouldn't have these treatments, uh, so-called treatments, and that people shouldn't. You know, there's no such thing as changing from one sex to the other. Then surely, if if you're in some real life situation uh, where where that request is put to you and you decline, you would mm. think that that would get get you in trouble. So yeah, I hope there's that been. Sort a, of, hmm. I was going to say there's been a huge increase over the last you know few years of um gender transition oh, yeah. mm. um like growing up in the 90s for me like i i don't know anybody who um mm. transitioned gender but mm. i know i have relatives um who are in high school family mm. members who i know of who are in high mm. school and they know at least one or two kids in their year who are mm, currently mm. going through transition. And that blows my mind because as I said, mm. it's just something that I'm not used to. Now, I'm not sure whether you can comment on this. I'm not sure whether this is in your expertise or you have an opinion, it's up to you. But 
Mm. Can you kind of um, maybe shed some light into why you think there's all of a sudden an increase in kids, particularly who are wanting to go through a gender transition? Do you um, believe that there is some form of medical negligence because um, doctors are incapable of maybe looking at the core reason why that's happening and they feel like they just have to do what they're being asked to do because mm. they might lose their their job. Oh yeah, look, um, you know what your experience I think is a, is a very common one. We I, I, I share that experience and so do so do many people. So you know I've heard numerous stories from people um, that I know saying you know my granddaughter is now wanting to transition into a boy and and, and so on and so forth. Or I, you know my friend once my friend has a child in their class who you know so it's it's really all around us and and, and statistically we know that. Um, just by looking at the media and the statistics, um, that there's been, you know, in some cases, I think in the UK, a four thousand percent increase in this sort of thing happening uh, on previous on previous years. Um, so there, yeah, there has been an explosion. There's there's no um, disputing that. Um, why that's happening? Um, you know, there have been people who have there have been experts who've addressed this question. Um, and and one that comes to mind that I'm aware of is a is a American. Uh, she's a physician, I think, and a, and a public health expert. Her name is Lisa Littman. Um, she has looked specifically into this question of why uh, among adolescents, and I think particularly adolescent girls, why there is this uh, phenomenon of so many of them suddenly declaring and deciding that they're they're, they're boys and. She's, um, you know, she's done some research into it. It got her fired from her job, ultimately. But um, so she, she calls it a, um, a, you know, a social contagion. And that, that's a word that is now being, I guess, quite widely used. It's a contagion. It's a <clears throat> uh, something that, yeah, so it's a social phenomenon. It's a, um, a peer, peer group pressure type thing, like, like uh, you know, like uh, getting tattoos and, experimenting with drugs and all those other things which are sort of peer group influence when you have others in your peer group uh, doing something there's that um, tendency I suppose and, and it seems to be more so in, in females uh, to, to, um, to, to sort of copycat that behaviour. Um, certainly when you look at anorexia there, there is you know it's it's a documented thing that there are groups online and, and, and social media sort of networks of of girls with anorex anorexia and and they kind of effectively encourage each other in that behavior um and it, <clears throat> the same sort of thing seems to be happening here uh, there, there is a um uh, you know i don't know what you, what you want to call it a herd effect or a peer pressure effect where where females in particular are more vulnerable to it um, in that adolescent age group where they, they sort of follow along with with, 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 with with what others are doing. And then when you have someone famous like um, Ellen, Ellen Page, who's now called herself Elliot Page, you know, when, when someone famous like that does it, it becomes even more trendy. And, you know, so it's, it's a sociological phenomenon. Um, I guess the question from a medical perspective is, do we go along with it or not? Do we do we say, well, we're not going to be part of this because 
you know, it, it's it's not helpful? Or do we say, all right, come along, we'll prescribe you the hormones, we'll give you the mastectomies and 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 whatnot, and and we'll we'll um give you what you want. That's that's the question for the medical profession. Um, and and unfortunately, it seems to be going that way. It seems to be, uh, you know, at the very least, it, it's um facilitating it. It's it's saying, okay, well, um. If, if you are a girl who's decided that you don't want to be a girl anymore, we'll put you on puberty blockers, we'll give you male hormones, we'll uh, do a mastectomy on you, um, all, all those sorts of things. Um, when, when really there's no, there's, no, there's no medical justification for any of it um, and it's demonstrably harmful. So. Well, it's, that's what I sort of wanted to ask you. Um, going back to the peer pressure social type influences, I don't know if you remember a TV series on Netflix called 13 Reasons Why, and it was about a young girl who was in high school who committed suicide and she wrote she she recorded 13 tapes to 13 different people in her school year as to the reasons why she committed suicide mm. and they almost glorified suicide they made it attractive because this girl and her story and shortly after this particular series was released they saw a number of suicides in teenage girls increase or at least um you know not necessarily um they they did they weren't successful with the suicide but it was attempted or they had those thoughts there was a significant mm. increase mm. and there was actually and i forget the person who did the study but there was a study done um particularly around that tv series and mm. the effect that it was having on young girls and mm. how it was mm. this social um identity sort of thing um and so, so I can see the parallels with mm, mm. with that age group, with with women, and it actually just breaks my heart. Like I, I mm. genuinely get sad for young girls and boys who feel um, that they don't have an yeah, identity yeah. unless they do certain things and, to their body. And um, the, the, but, me, the media is aware of this. The media knows mm. that um, when you report on suicide, it can trigger people out there to start thinking about it and want to do it so that's yeah. why they they do as a general rule they 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 try mm. to minimize their reporting on suicide as much as possible and when they do report on it they put a you know a lifeline or beyond blue sort of notice yes. there to, yeah because they know mm. that they know that people some people are suggestible when you when you put an idea in their head they'll go and do it mm. um and, and what's well, interesting it's just, as well sorry just cut, it's mm, interesting no, as right, well yeah. the um if you look up the statistics, there's actually like an LGBT website and you can get it straight from their website. So it's not from some alt-right news site. It's not, from, mm. it's actually from their own sources. And it goes mm. through mental health for people in that particular group in the in society. It goes through lesbians, it goes through non-binary, it goes through transgender, mm. it goes through gay, goes through all of them. And it gives you the individual statistics um, for increase in mental disorders, depression, mm. suicide, and, yeah. and successful suicide. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely heartbreaking. And all I keep thinking is surely there's another answer for all of mm. this. 
Surely. And there's also a lot of other studies out there that I've read that show that there's a lot of transition regret, especially Mm -hmm. in adults. And if kids are transitioning when they're young, by the time they reach 25, I think it's something, it's over 70 or 80% of of people that eventually have feelings or thoughts of regret. And the whole Mm -hmm. situation just breaks my heart. And what breaks my heart even more is we can't have these honest conversations so we can genuinely actually help people who need help. And I guess that must be frustrating for you as a doctor to be in a position where you're not allowed to consider alternative ways to help people. You just have Mm. to do what they're asking or or Mm. you have fear of losing your job. Um, So I I honestly, I don't know how you guys do it. I'm I'm not a doctor and I struggle on the sidelines looking in to, to this sort of world. But I wanted to ask you about the Australian Medical Board. Is it APRA? I think you mentioned. Um, who is that made up of? Are they actual doctors yeah. or are they business people? Um, I'm just curious who's overseeing doctors, doctors overseeing doctors or civilians. Uh, look, the whole it's a very, very murky system. APRA is an umbrella organisation. So APRA is over doctors, nurses, paramedics, physiotherapists, um, optometrists, dentists, you know, so all, all health practitioners. And so under, under APRA, you have the medical board, the nursing board, the physiotherapy board and so on. Um, so it's one great big uh, monstrous bureaucracy mm. uh, in, in, in Canberra and in each of the states. And, um, you know, you can sort of to an extent go on the website and see who's part of these organisations. But, you know, like all bureaucracies, there's, there's a whole lot of people there that, who are faceless and, um, you mm. know, there's, there's no way of finding out who they are and particularly the ones that make decisions. Yeah. They're, 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 they're faceless members of the bureaucracy. And, um, you know, obviously in the medical board there are some doctors there and in the nursing board there's some nurses there, but then there are also bureaucrats and all sorts of right. other people and, um, you know, sometimes I wonder if the kind of person searching through my Facebook and uh you know selecting out incriminating mm-hmm. um comments is is some sort of 28 year old arts graduate who <laughs> you know no experience was, in medicine yeah well that's mm. right yeah yeah you know sometimes i wonder that so the, it's it's a very murky world and and you know when APRA was formed a few years ago, well you know maybe 10 years ago now as an amalgamation of all these different boards and um, agencies, uh, there was a lot of opposition from people saying that, you know, we're creating this monstrous bureaucracy that's answerable to nobody and that's, Mm. you know, before that it was was much more local and state-based. Each state had its own um, board and and you didn't have this one entity that, that, that managed all the health practitioners of Mm. of every, of every sort. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, so a, it's when, a great mystery. Mm. Yeah. So when APRA um, essentially suspended you, what was the response from your colleagues that you worked with? Were they in shock? Were they sad to see you go? Was it confusing mm. to them? Um, probably. I mean, I, you know, because of the nature of what, you know, because one day I'm allowed to go into work and then one day I'm not, then um, in, in a lot of cases, well, my, you know, I, I spoke to a few of them. Um, and, and the ones that I spoke to were sort of shocked and horrified and upset. But, um, you know, after a while, you know, um, I, I sort of gradually lost touch with them because I wasn't going to work anymore. 
wasn't allowed to go to work. So, um, you know, and I suppose they just had to they had to move on and and um, and and uh, you know, and, and part of part of the whole thing is that when something like this happens, um, it's all very secretive. So they don't, you know, they they don't really sort of know why it's happened, other than what I've told them. It's not published anywhere, so you know, I, I guess they've got to reserve a bit of judgment as well about well, we've got to wait and see how this whole thing plays out before we know who's who's the guilty party and who's the innocent party. And you know, three years later, we're still waiting for that to to, to play out. Um, but yeah, look, um, obviously the, the people I work with and the people that that, that, I, that I knew well and knew me well, uh, they were all aware of the fact that it was nothing to do with my um, patient care or my clinical competency or anything like that it was it was all stuff that happened outside in in my personal life you know it was um because you've never had a complaint from a patient this is literally been this has happened this entire suspension has not Mm. been because a patient has complained that you discriminate against them or you didn't give them good medical treatment this is purely anonymous people online who have found you and targeted you yeah in in my case yes that's right Mm. so i've never you know uh, thankfully, never had a patient complaint made to APRA about about um you know competence or anything like that or rudeness or uh, so it was all sort of um it, it was all outside of work and, and I think that's what's you know that's what's really quite um troubling about this whole thing is that it's showing that uh, there is not now no longer this clear demarcation between your professional life and your home life or your personal life that the professional bodies and employers and and so on can now uh, intrude on your on what you do at home wearing your pajamas you know (laughs) and and they can um they can hold you accountable for those things and fire you and discipline you and and so forth um even when you're not at work They, they feel they've got this complete ownership over you um, you know, the same thing happened with Israel Folau, the, the rugby player. Um, the things he got in trouble with were not on field. They had nothing to do with his teammates. They had nothing to do with any of the um, referees or anything to do with the game. It was something he said on his personal, you know, page or whatever. Um, but they now believe that they have ownership of you in, in, in that sort of 27, uh, 24-7 way. Um, where what you do and say, even at home, uh, you know, in the middle of the night when you're not at work, falls under their um, under their jurisdiction, so to speak. So, just um, doesn't make sense if you are like, if someone had have complained against you, even then, you know, like it's an allegation only, and it needs to be proven. But that makes stage, a little yeah. bit more sense. But the fact that no one has complained about you um, and your and you as a doctor um, mm. is just it's honestly shocking. And I remember reading somewhere that you shared um, maybe something from One Nation from Mark Latham, possibly, and mm. that came up in the investigation. And all I thought was he's an elected politician in Australia, mm. an elected one. He's um, you know, represents our political parties over here and Mm. you're not even allowed to share some of his content. Mm. I know you shared some things from the Daily Wire and some other conservative sites. And these are all things, am I right, that came up in this investigation? Yeah, they've come up. Yep, yep. So, yeah, there's there's stuff which 
a whole lot of stuff which I've shared and, and often without even adding any of my own comment. Um, things from, um, yeah, the sorts of sort of places you mentioned, Mark Latham, um, Matt Walsh, uh, Ali Stuckey, um, and, and, you know, uh, websites like Public Discourse and the Gospel Coalition, and even, the, even the Australian Christian Lobby and, and Lyle Shelton, you know, sharing, sharing their blog articles and so on. It's all been captured in the, in the net. And because it's about topics like sexuality, gender, um, gen, uh, you know, gender, uh, gender identity and, and uh, transitioning of gender and so forth, um, they, they've, they've captured all that and said you can't say those things, you can't share those things, those are things that, you know, it's, it's, it's against, um, uh, you know, against the, um, I guess, the rules of, of the, you know, not that these rules are really stipulated anywhere, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But um, you've, you've also mentioned before that you're not the only doctor in Australia who's been through this. And I know, I'm guessing through your experience, you've probably learnt a lot of other mm. doctors that have been through something similar. Can you share like a couple of, obviously without giving out details because mm, of any mm. legal course or mm. anything, but can you sort of share some other examples of similar mm. things? Yeah, well, look, in, in the past, there's certainly been a number of other doctors who've gotten in various kinds of trouble with APRA over things similar to me, so um, speaking about abortion, speaking about gay marriage. Um, you know, one doctor I'm aware of gave a, uh, um, a speech or talk in a church about safe schools, and, you know, he was saying that, um, you know, safe schools is a bad idea and it's... it's, it's, it's uh, about you know corrupting children and so on so um and and that came to the you know someone reported that to APRA and he he, he got APRA knocking on his door about that so there's been that kind of thing um in the past and and you know other doctors have had APRA come after them for opposing uh transgender um so-called treatments um so that that yeah that I, I I'm probably as far as I know I'm the only one who's gotten to the point of being suspended oh actually no that's not until well, uh, there haven't been many who've been suspended for those reasons but more recently there have been a whole lot of doctors who've been suspended um over covid related you know so in the last couple of years <coughs> excuse me with covid and, and and all of that um there have been a number of other doctors who've who, who've been uh, been suspended in the same way that i have um you know instantly removed from practice without any kind of trial you know um so and look some of those some of those are very very publicly known so you have um mark hobart paul Oosterhuis, you know, that, i don't know how you pronounce his name but that's my best guess um robert brennan so you have a few of these doctors who and in some cases all they have done like me is um write things or say things which are deemed to be against the uh, accepted orthodoxy um and it's been nothing. In, in some cases, it's been to do with what they've done at work, but in many cases, it hasn't been. And they've been suspended because they have, um, you know, allegedly contradicted the government um, policies with with respect to COVID. So, um, and um, yeah, look, they're in a similar situation to me now. They're waiting, waiting trial, I suppose, unable to work. Um, and it's it's pretty horrible, uh, especially when you consider that n none of them have 
actually harm the patient, that, you know, as far as I know. We're talking about the sorts of things that don't actually harm individual patients. Uh, they just go against, you know, an orthodoxy um, that's been defined by politicians, essentially. Well, it's probably a good segue. <clears throat> I actually wanted to ask you about COVID, if you're happy to sort mm. of talk about it. Mm -hmm. As a doctor, I mean, well, firstly, as, as a citizen of Australia, I've been appalled at the handling of this pandemic from the censorship, from the lack of objective debate, from mm. the lack of science, from the lack mm. of common sense. Um, and particularly, you're hearing horror stories, like you mentioned, of doctors who dare to talk about preventative treatments, who dare talk about the efficacy of the vaccines, and who dare want to give exemptions for people who mm. might have medical reasons or they just want to wait um mm. and so i'm shocked as a doctor how mm. have you sort of interpreted or how have you seen the handling of this pandemic are you as shocked mm. as me with it all oh <laughs> uh, look i kind of feel now like i dodged a bullet so i got suspended in you know second half of 2019 before all this hit and i sort of feel like gosh uh so i didn't have to practice medicine um through the through the pandemic, which which now I think, well, I think that really um, <laughs> spared me from from mm -hmm. from a whole lot of grief. Now, grace. Oh, look, I, you know, I yeah, definitely, I, I live, you know, I live in Melbourne. Um, we've been through two hundred and sixty-two days of hard lockdown. You know, can't leave our homes for more than three reasons for more than one hour a day. Uh, you can't go more than five k's from home, and you know, we've had to endure that for for, for those two years. It was horrendous. And the harm that caused on so many levels to so many people, uh, including people known personally to me, um, you know, obviously this this whole COVID situation is is very very complicated. But I think um, what uh, what what you can see happening is governments uh, rushing to <clears throat> declare states of emergency and then giving themselves extraordinary powers. Um, to you know, rule, rule by decree basically, and, and enforce mm. martial law, uh, which has completely decimated all our um, you know all our civil liberties and so forth. So um, yeah, look, you know, you know what we've 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 had to live through this whole nightmare of. Um, you know, yeah, and and it's been particularly bad in Melbourne with um you know protesters being pepper sprayed and shot at with rubber bullets and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, it's been horrendous. Now, um, you know, from from a medical perspective, well, yeah, it's it's a you know coronavirus is a medical condition, but the response to it is a government thing. It's a it's a it's a political thing. It's a, it's a policy thing. So. Um, you know, it's it's enforcing a curfew at eight pm isn't a medical thing; it's a political thing. Uh, in fact, you know, here in Victoria, um, it was admitted by the government that 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 advice to have a curfew at eight pm did not come from the health office, chief health officer. That was just a decision by the by the premier and the government. Um, you know, these sorts of rules. You know, you can only travel five kilometres from your home. You can only um, uh, leave your home for three, three or four reasons uh, and things like vaccine mandates, these are all political 
policies, political decisions, they're not medical in nature. You know, medical, uh, medical things are, uh, you know, it's about prescribing medication and, and so forth and uh, some sort of, you know, an arbitrary thing like five kilometres is the limit you can travel. That's not medical, you know. Do you feel like doctors have had their hands tied throughout this pandemic in terms of what medicine and treatment they can give their patients when they're fronted with coronavirus and not only that other medical sorts of treatments like there's a lot of telephone um, appointments now as opposed to face to face do you what sort of impact is this having on on actual people who are practicing medicine um oh well i know that um yeah look it's 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 had an impact uh so yeah, we, we all know that things like elective surgery has been suspended for a long time and shut down, and, and lots of yeah, lots of uh, lots of consultations have been cancelled, and things are being done remotely, and or not at all. You know, a lot of a lot of screening programs have been um, affected by this. So it's happened not just here in Australia, but you know, in America and everywhere else, um, where we've become so focused on one virus and one condition uh, that we've basically decided to ignore everything else you know all the other healthcare problems and including mental health you know we used to talk about uh we used to pride ourselves on how seriously we took mental health and you know mental health is just as important as physical health and all of a sudden <laughs> um that whole priority has changed you know mental health is completely uh being thrown under the bus uh we don't care that these lockdowns have have increased um depression increased alcoholism and addictions and um, you know, we'd, we, we've just kind of accepted it all as collateral damage that, that, that there's increased suicide thoughts in children and that there's mm. families breaking apart, increased, in, increased uh, domestic violence and all those sorts of things. We just, oh, well, that's just collateral damage because we only care about one condition now. The only disease that matters is, um, is the coronavirus. Not all, you know, there's no sort of, there's no balancing of priorities. There's no, hmm. um, there's no seeing things as um, parts of a whole. There's just this tunnel vision uh, about one thing, which and and uh, which has led uh, led to everything else being completely ignored for two years. And and that's you know that's going to come back to bite. Um, yeah. So people, yeah, people who have. Um, had all sorts of other, uh, you know, where, where their health has suffered, physical and mental, in all sorts of other ways throughout these last two years, that's not, not going to suddenly um, magically disappear. That's all going to come back to bite eventually. Um, with, you know, more chronic illness and um, more mental health problems and it's going to be years to sort all this out. Um, yeah. I feel like there's going to be a lot of underlying health things that people have put off because of the yeah. pandemic. I mean, oh, breast sure. screening clinics were shut um, yep. for a time and, mm. you know, like... That's such an essential mm. service. It's such a necessity, preventative um, mm. measure of health. That's only one example. There, as you mentioned, there is mental health, which is, I think, going to be a ginormous thing that we're going to have to experience in the future. I think a lot of children at the age where they're kind of their cognitive abilities aren't there and they're developing and they're learning, and this is the world they've been thrust upon. I'm. I don't even know, and I don't want to pretend to know. I I fully understand what it's going to be like in the future for them, but it's it's scary when you think about the ripple effect that 
putting all these other things off is going to have, I mean, alcohol in Australia, there's 431 and it's probably more now. That was a statistic from a few years ago that are admitted to hospital every day for alcohol related diseases. Mm. We don't hear about that. Mm. No, mm. We don't get those numbers on the news. Um, no. And, you know, it's it does seem exactly, as you said, very much tunnel vision. And mm. would you say that this is going to lead to like mass medical negligence on, on a huge scale across the country? Um, what do you mean? Uh, <laughs> like, as I, in, <laughs> sorry, that was probably a bit of a broad yeah. question. The, um, <laughs> the policies and the handling of the pandemic, mm. Do you think that that's in the end going to result in a lot of long-term medical problems? Do you think that the government might be hard oh, will to they, say? Will, will they own up to it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't hold out a lot of hope that anyone's going to be held accountable for any of this, but who knows? Um, you know, I, I, think, I think it's going to take probably a decade for the dust to settle and, and maybe in 10 years' time when people look back, um, they'll be able to say, oh, you know, that wasn't handled very well. The problem is there were so many people at the time saying, no, this is not the right way to do it. You know, there's been the, the Great Barrington Declaration and all those sorts of things. There have been so many experts saying, no, 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 we're doing this, going about this the wrong way, but they've been ignored. Um, and look, why maybe in that? <laughs> I don't, well. Why are some doctors being listened to and some not? I mean, mm. I spoke to Dr. Peter McCullough, the leading mm cardiologist and epidemiologist in the world, the most published doctor mm. when it comes to COVID. And he's being censored. He's His opinion isn't allowed to be said. He has spoken about the efficacy of vaccines. Um, and again, censorship, like mm. why are some doctors being heard more than others? I wish I knew. <laughs> uh, look, I think all, all of this that's happening and, it, you know, it links to what's happened to me is that what it appears to me is that there is this um, effort or project to impose a strict orthodoxy on all of healthcare and medicine um, where, you know, there is a, there's, it's very, very fundamentalist. There is a right and a wrong. Uh, you are either, you know, it's, it's truth and error. You know, it's, 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 almost, it's religious almost. Um, look, when it comes to medicine, there are there is there are, there are right ways to do things and wrong ways to do things. You know, if someone's having an asthma attack or a heart attack, well, there are right ways to treat that, and there are wrong, wrong ways to treat that. But we're talking here; we're not talking those sorts of things. Um, we're talking areas where there is legitimate uncertainty. Um, so, when it comes to what you do with someone who's confused about their gender. Um, you know, you're fooling yourself to think that that's clear cut um, and that, oh, well, oh, it's obvious we just help them change their gender. You know, it's just rubbish. Um, that, that's, that's just a, a, a political bandwagon. It's, it's, it's ideology driving that. Um, there's no, you know, the evidence base for that is extremely poor. In fact, the evidence speaks against it. So, um, but, and yet, they're, you know, they're imposing a new fundamentalist orthodoxy you know you you, um, uh, you have to believe in it if you don't you're a heretic and will excommunicate you and I think it's the same thing with um, this, the same sort of process that we that you can see playing out with, with some of this COVID stuff um, there's one way to think everyone's got a sort of march in lockstep with that and 
and, and that one way to think is, you know, you've got to be pro lockdown. You've got to be mandating the vaccine to everybody, including children and whatnot. Um, and and if, if anyone sort of deviates from that, then they're a they're a heretic, you know. Um, and there's no room to have a debate. There's no room to have a discussion. There's no room to actually sit down and look at the facts together. It's just black and white. You're either on the right side or the wrong side. If you're on the wrong side, we we remove you. I, I think that's yeah. what seems to be happening, and it's it's this sort of um, dogmatism. And uh, you know, the thing about COVID, it's only been around for two years, right? It's it's brand new. Um, two years is a, is a blink of an eye in in, in history. Um, there are many things in medicine which have taken decades to sort out, to get the right answer. Um, an example that I like to sort of mention is, is um, giving oxygen to people who've had heart attacks. You know, for going, going back almost a century, the practice was if someone's having a heart attack and the ambulance turns up to give them oxygen because the reasoning was, well, um, their heart is being starved of oxygen, so we put an oxygen mask on their face and give them more oxygen and it will help their heart. And they did that, um, you know, uh, for for decades and decades and decades. And then finally, about 10 years ago, they decided, well, let's actually look into this. Let's um, do some robust study into this issue. And they found that they found that the, the patients being given oxygen were ending up with worse outcomes, that it was causing damage. And, the one, and, and, and it caused this total reversal of decades and decades and decades of practice. Um, uh, and so now if, you, if you're having a heart attack and the ambulance comes and they, they'll check your oxygen levels, if your oxygen level is normal, they won't give you oxygen. And there's been so many examples of this sort of um, flip-flopping in medicine over years, you know, more, more, more information comes to light and, oh, the way we used to do that, that wasn't so good. And it, and it will change back and forth. You know, uh, hormone replacement therapy for menopause is another example where there's that thing going back and forth. And, um my, some of my older colleagues who practiced medicine for longer than I had would talk about how in their career they've seen so many things flip between, you know, oh, we do this is now how we do it. Oh, now this is how we do it. Now this is how we do it. Because it's just continually, you know, there's a process of, of, of discovery. It's all so complicated. And so where am I going with this? You know, COVID's been around for two years, um, which is the blink of an eye. And there is this, uh, you can only describe it as this, this overconfidence, um, this absolute certainty that this is the way we deal with it. We have to do it this way. And if you even sort of dare to suggest a different way of doing it, then we purge you. Mm. And it's just ridiculous. I mean, we all saw with our own eyes that, at the start of 20, uh, 2020, they were saying, no, 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 don't wear masks. Masks are not useful. They're not, um, mm. they, you know, they, they, don't, they don't prevent. Um, and and that, that has been longstanding sort of uh, advice, even from influenza in the past, that, you know, masks aren't very helpful in, in preventing the spread of these sorts of viruses. Uh, but then almost overnight, you've all got to wear a mask all the time, yeah. everywhere. You know, that changing Big in position. Flip-flop. And, and, and then now, and then now, finally, well, you know, they've quietly sort of backed down from a lot of that now. And now there's some emergent, uh, some data that's finally emerged that says, oh, well, actually, they're not so useful. So to, to have this sort of absolute certainty, um, you know, it's almost like 
religious certainty that, you know, this is what the scriptures say, so we believe it. Um, mm. uh, and if you don't, then we we purge you. You know, it's it's just ridiculous for something that's only been around two years where everyone is grappling to uh, work out, you know, what is going on and how do we deal with this. And, and so, um, look, look, maybe it'll turn out that some of these doctors are right, some of these doctors are wrong, but the point is we can't even have the discussion at the moment. Only yeah. one, yeah, only one point of view is allowed to be um, expressed, uh, mm. the, the authorised orthodoxy, and and, um, and when that's happening, you don't have any confidence that we're going to arrive at the truth. Um, yeah. That's, that's how I see it anyway. Uh, yeah, I have a, a friend of mine who um, was mandated for the vaccine and he mm. has a, his, a family history of heart problems and everything mm. else. So he's gone to the doctor and just said, look, I'm young, like I'm in mm. that young category of men um, who is got a higher chance of mm. having complications if I get the yes. vaccine. Um, can I just have a six-month exemption to mm. wait for more data to come out? Mm. Not that mm. they're anti-vax, not that they're mm. never going to do it, but just some time, just a period of grace where they can yeah. figure out what they're actually putting into their body. And the doctor, based on the medical history of this patient, and mm. the family history said, I want to give you an exemption. I think that you would be one of the people who I would happily give an exemption to, but I'm not allowed to. I'm so mm. sorry. Mm. And yeah, this yeah, doctor yeah. Oh, said, yeah. I can verbally say to you, don't get it because I don't think that you should, but I can't put that on paper for you. And my friend is like left going, oh, my goodness. Like, Well, it's, you know, wow. you know he, there's, a, there's, a, there's a doctor in Victoria Um he used to practice down sort of Rosebud Way, <clears throat> elderly, elderly doctor. He uh, gave advice to a patient along similar lines, a young patient who, um, uh, you know, came to ask, you know, and someone who's young who's not at very high risk of the virus at all, mm. and um, said, you know, what should I do? And he, he didn't, as far as I know, write any kind of exemption. He just said, look, I, I think it would be reasonable to wait until, he didn't say don't get the vaccine, it's dangerous. He said, it's reasonable to wait till there's more data about safety. And then that somehow someone in that patient's family or whatever reported that doctor to APRA and he's, he's suspended now, you know, wow. and there's, there's, yeah, there's a number of um, instances where that sort of thing has happened. Um, so it's, you, you know, you don't have to be a, a raving anti-vaxxer and talking about it, having microchips and 5G. You, you just have to say, Oh, look, I'm just not so sure about this. You know, and here's the thing, um, talking about flip-flopping, you know, as, as as recently as six, seven months ago in about May of, May, what year are we now? 2022. <laughs> May, of 20, <laughs> May of 2021, um, you had Anthony Fauci and, and uh, you know, the, the head of the CDC uh, was saying that this vaccine, if you have it, you cannot transmit the virus. It, it, it leads; it's it, it's a dead end. Um, and you, they were even saying in, in in America, once you've been fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask anymore because yeah. you can't transmit the virus. And that was the the, the head of the CDC and, the, and and Tony Fauci himself saying that in in about May of 2021. Now, where has that advice gone? You know, within about two or three mm. months of that, that whole thing was um, they had to completely backflip on that and say, oh. Well, actually, uh, you know, no, it doesn't prevent transmission. Um, 
you've got to put your mask back on. And and then, you know, and then Om, Om, Omicron comes along and completely blows the whole thing out of the water. So, Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, so this idea of um, that, well, there's only one way to think about it, and, and you've got to toe that line, and it, it's been shown over and over again um, to be, you know, to be flawed. And yeah, um, the, the, the thing about the vaccines, you know, anyone who wants one, by all means, go get one. But people who have hesitations, you know, those hesitations should be taken seriously. You know, there shouldn't be this compulsion. Uh, people shouldn't be robbed of their ability to work, um, to, uh, uh, you know, over this sort of thing um, because, you know, the, the fact is the, the, this is a very new product. It's only been around for one year. Yeah. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't have the complete data. That's why they are not, you know, they're, they're provisionally licensed or, EUA uh, emergency use, you know, the, that's the, mm. that very fact says, well, we we don't have the full data, and if someone wants to wait for that full data before they make a decision, well, they should be allowed to, especially if they're young, um, at relatively low risk. Um, uh, you know, I know another doctor who got in trouble with APRA um, who uh, because she had a pregnant woman ask her for an exemption, and you know. I think it's fair enough if you're pregnant to go, oh, how might this thing affect my unborn baby? Mm. Um, so this doctor wrote an exemption for this um, pregnant lady um, and then I don't, I don't know if it was that lady's employer or whatever sent it into APRA and then now she's in trouble. So it's, insanity. You know, it's a complete intolerance of, you know, it's completely unreasonable. Um, we've gone from medicine being something where, we give recommendations and we give advice to being the old school model, you know, the old, the old model of medicine that we were, we're supposed to have rejected now is the authoritarian authoritative model where the doctor gives the orders and you, um, uh, you submit to that, you know, you, 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 you don't ask questions, you just do it because the doctor said so, you know, and when I went through training, in the in the late 90s or whatever they said no we don't do that anymore medicine's about a partnership with the patient it's about uh gaining their trust and um mm. you know that therapeutic partnership where they trust you where you give them advice and information um and uh they go away and make make their decision you know if, if yeah. you prescribe them something and uh, they decide not to take it well that's that's life you know, yeah. you can't force them to do it. Um, but we've reverted back to this authoritarianism. I mean, look, most doctors probably aren't that keen on it, but it's what the government is requiring now. The government's mm -hmm. saying, take, it's the government more than doctors saying, take the medicine. If you don't take it, you can't work, you can't go to a restaurant, you can't get your hair cut, you're excluded from yeah. society. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, it kind of doesn't matter whether, it doesn't matter what people's reasons are. It, it, because there's all sorts of complicated reasons why someone might not want to have something. I know elderly people who don't want the vaccine. And it's probably, you know, I'd have to say, for an elderly person, it's probably in their interest to have the vaccine because they're more vulnerable, but they don't want to for whatever reason. But that's their choice, isn't it? I mean, it's not for the government to say you, you have to because the government wouldn't do that with anything else. They wouldn't force them to take their blood pressure medications or their cholesterol medications. But now it's saying, well, we can force you to take this. It's it's just a complete upending of of the way everything's been done for for so long, um, mm. 
and and you just wonder, well, you know, is this temporary or is this just how things are going to be from now on? Is this going to be are we are we reverting back to um, a model where you follow the doctor's orders without questions, or, or you follow the, the government's orders mediated through the doctors? Um, <laughs> It's quite uh, scary when you think about the precedent that this is setting. It's It sounds mm. like you broke the precedent um, and modern medicine has been more of a relationship between doctor and patient. And, yeah, as you yeah. said, it sounds like we're reverting back to that authoritarian type mm. doctor-patient relationship. And, yeah, that's not a good thought. And I'm sort of at the point now where even if you are an anti-vaxxer, so to say, good for you, mm. because at this point in time, I think that people are forgetting the big picture. People are forgetting the precedent because you might think it's justifiable to mm. force somebody to be vaccinated now mm. because of what's going on. But now mm. once that precedent is set, who knows, in 10, 15, well, 20 right. years time, yeah. your kids could be faced with that precedent exactly. or mm. something else that you don't agree with. And, you know, mm. I, I don't like the word anti-vaxxer. I, I don't like the negative connotation it has. And, and, and it's like mm. been turned into a dirty word and I just reject it altogether. There are so many things I'm rejecting. I reject the idea that I have to publicly display my private medical information. I think that's a really bad precedent that um, we've yeah. set. Yeah, Family and friends, yeah. you have mm. to say, oh, just letting you know before we catch up, I'm mm. vaccinated. I don't know what you want to do. I don't know if you want to see me, but yeah, this, yeah, and it's like, yeah, yeah. I don't like it. Would you like it. to know, gotta... my, uh, would you like to know when I had my last pap smear as well and my last colonoscopy? Exactly. While, while here's we're my at blood it. type. Here, here's an ultrasound of my uterus so you know I am a woman. Um, yeah. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's just ridiculous what's happening. Um, and, you yeah. know, the story that you mentioned about the doctor with the pregnant woman, I mean, goodness, you don't eat ham, cold meats, you don't yeah. have Panadol, Nurofen, you don't yeah. do yeah. anything when you're pregnant you treat yep. yourself like this sacred vessel that's growing it's a human life very much, that's exactly and right like, it is it, you know, it's a sacrosanct status you know something that they <sighs> uh, something that's drummed into you when you when you're learning to be a doctor when you're training you is find out if that woman is pregnant because if she's pregnant you can't prescribe her anything you know anything I mean, that's it, right. it really restricts what you can prescribe them because everything is potentially dangerous you know they can have panadol and that's about yeah it. Um, yeah even know, breastfeeding mothers You've yeah, got to yeah, be careful. Yeah, 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 and you know they can't have their cold meat. They can't have sushi. Yeah, yep. there's this extreme <laughs> level of caution about pregnant women. But now a, a, a woman this. is. Uh, uh, yeah, this this lady is 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 uh, hesitant and and concerned about the effect it might have, and uh, seeks an exemption. And the doctor gets in trouble with APRA for writing an exemption. It's just insane. Mm. Um, it, it's it is completely inconsistent. And you know the, the thing about, like you said. Um, with, with anti-vaxxers, you know, um, there, there are yeah, there are principles at play. There are there are more important principles that, that are underlying all this than, than than simply you know can we control the virus or not? Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm I've I've always been someone who's in favour of vaccines and very happy with the measles vaccine and the chickenpox vaccine and the tetanus vaccine and all those other vaccines. They're all you know all very good, and I used to encourage them and. Um, encourage my patients to to have them um, but something I've also um, respected is that people have a choice and that people can decide not to and I'm not going mm -hmm. to uh, twist somebody's arm if they say well no, I don't want my kids to have this or I don't want to have this I'm not going to force them to because I think that that choice is very very important if we violate that principle of choice um, then then we're going down a very bad road um, yes. as a medical profession um, you know the, the 
there has to be that consent, you know, um, and, and that's considered important some of the time. So, you know, if, if a surgeon went ahead and, oh, well, while we're in, while we've got your tummy cut open and um, we're doing this procedure, oh, while I'm here, I might snip this other thing too uh, just while I'm here, you know, they can't do that. You know, if you haven't got the consent from the patient to do that, you can't do it. You have to have the consent unless it's an emergency. You have to have the consent from them before they've gone under to do whatever operation you're going to do. Um, and, you know, and, and, and doctors would get in a lot of trouble in the past for doing things without a patient's, you know, without a proper informed signed consent. Yeah. Um, but now that there is no consent anymore, you can't consent to something when it's you have to do this or you will lose your job, you know. Yeah. Th- there is no consent. So there's that complete violation of that important crucial principle um and you know you you can be you can be pro-vaccine that's fine but to take that step and say oh well we force it on people um that's that's wrong absolutely wrong because you don't know what you're opening up uh you know Mm -hmm. what pandora's box you're opening up um when when you do that um there's been a long you know, uh, in, in the disability um, uh, community, there's been a very long-running uh, issue of uh, historical issue of disabled people being given contraceptives uh, without their consent and that, that kind yeah. of thing, being sterilised without their consent. I mean, it, was a, it used to be a practice that if someone was disabled, well, we'll snip their tubes or whatever, make sure they don't reproduce because they won't be able to handle it. And, and you know, and, and disability advocates for a long time have fought against that. And, and, you know, they fought successfully against that. So those sorts of practices are now considered um, wrong because you can't do things to people without their consent. And, and just the fact that they're disabled doesn't give you an excuse to think, well, I know better and I can, I can kind of do things to their body uh, that, they, that they haven't agreed to. Um, mm. uh, you know, and and well, all of that's now suddenly reversed, and we we are back to uh, um, forcing people to do things that they don't want. It's it's just terrible. Um, mm. How long will it? You know, where could it lead? You know, could it lead to well, if you don't if you don't take a contraceptive, then you're going to lose some privileges. You know, it's, I don't well, think where it's, it went in China. Yeah, yeah, with abortion, yeah. the one, one child, child policy. policy. Yeah, yeah. That's the rabbit hole. The rabbit holes go long and far, mm. and they are dark and scary places. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and so. um, it, you know, you can't just assume that because we live in a Western country, things are going to stay rosy. Uh, because all of this, all of the freedom we enjoy is extremely fragile. And very true. Uh, once you, you know, once we say, well, the government now owns my body. The government and government doctors can decide what gets put into it and what happens mm. to it that opens up some very dangerous paths. So it does. You know, that, hmm. Yeah. But look, what I want to know now is where, <laughs> where, are you, where's your story ending? Like you're obviously being suspended. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Wouldn't you love to know? I would love to know yeah. where things end. I'm such a, I'm somebody who, when I get yeah, a book and I'm, people are going to listen and cringe. I read like the last chapter just so I know where it's ending. I just can't handle the suspense. Um, So I'd love to know the ending. But what I mean is, you know, you've been suspended from practicing Mm. medicine. You're obviously Mm. going through a process right now. Whereabouts are you up to with that sort of stage? 
I'd love to know the end of the, you know of this too. And as as I said earlier, um, it does appear to be heading towards some kind of you know hearing and trial this year. So I think something's going to happen this year. Um, look, and something I want to say is that this is something that I think you know I would like people to take seriously because it isn't just about me and one person and one person's um, career. It's a bit like Peter Ripp, you know, the academic who um, got fired from his university because he uh, said said the um, you know, the wrong the wrong things about mm. the Great Barrier Reef. You know, um, these That's sorts right. of decisions, mm. these sorts of decisions that get made by courts end up impacting everyone. You know, in in Australia, we have a common law system which we inherited from England, and in common law, uh, the way it works is that when a court makes some kind of ruling, that then becomes set in Case in the law. book. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. and that then um, will determine every other ruling in the future about anything yeah. that's related. Um, and that's how common law works. And it's generally a good thing. Um, uh, but, you know, so if you have someone who ha- uh, is being tried for um, saying on, on Facebook that a man can't change into a woman, um and he lost his job for that and he lost his ability to, to practice for that. Um, then, and, and there's a ruling that says, yes, that was fair enough and, and uh, uh, he, um, he ought to be punished for that. Then that becomes part of the body of law. And mm. any time, you know, that will empower activists to be able to attack anyone in the future if they decide that they don't like what you think and what you say and they can find some evidence that you're um uh you've got the wrong opinions about transgenderism or abortion or whatever uh they'll be able to take action against you and because a decision's now been made in in the in the law books um that you can't say those things those sorts of things are um you know discriminatory or offensive or antisocial or whatever um you know they're going to rule the same way so yeah you know whatever outcome happens to me i'd like to know the end of the story i'd like to see it resolved um one way or another um but it won't just affect me uh you know in a sense now this has gone on for long enough that i've really stopped caring in a sense about well will i will i work again as a doctor i mean i've been taken out for three years now um i'd have to start all over again if i went back um but you know that's sort of not the issue now. The issue is, well, what ruling will be made, and that ruling is going to be there as a precedent for everything else that mm. happens in the future. Not just for doctors and nurses and healthcare providers, but you know they they can refer to that in any kind of future um, yeah. uh, litigation against someone who's um, you know been accused of. Uh, transphobia or whatever and Mm. it's not just you know saying something um at work or it's not just uh, something that you know happens during office hours it's when you're at home outside of your work time um uh you know on 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 facebook or twitter or whatever no longer (laughs) no longer at work but you know but they can they they can still they're monitoring you and uh, there can be repercussions. So I think that's, hmm. yeah, that's why I hope that um, people will take this seriously. 
um, because it is going to affect everybody in, in the long run. It's going to have wide-ranging effects in the long run. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually like genuinely sad that you're not practicing because you, you're the sort of doctor I would want to visit, someone who does care about very, my whole health, <laughs> um, someone who isn't um, caught up in, you know, the political, um, I guess, authoritarianism, but someone who's actually a doctor who, and who will treat me as an individual patient and hear my needs and work with me. So I, I'm sad that doctors like you um, are facing positions like this. I, I genuinely am going to pray and, and hope that everything comes out how it should. And as you said, case law, a scary precedent, it can be a very good thing, but it can be a very bad thing because, yeah, as you mentioned, judges, magistrates, they can use that when determining their sentencing, their rulings and all that. So, um, yeah, hoping and praying that the right outcome will come from all of this. Um, I do hope you stay in touch. I'd love to sort of catch up with you again um, later down the track and see, I guess, what happens and, and what happens as a result of that trial. But I, I really appreciate your time today. I really appreciate your insights and for being so bold to speaking out about this because it's almost an impossible thing for doctors to do today. So thanks so thanks. much and for please, joining um, me. You know, please keep praying for all the mm. other doctors who are caught up in all of this and, yeah. you know, the ones who've been stopped from practising but also the ones that are still practising and are caught in that very difficult situation mm. Uh, and I know, I know, you know, I've been connected to networks of them, secret networks of, of you know, hundreds of doctors who are flying below the radar. They think in a similar way to to the way that we think, you know, that they, they, they don't believe the government has the right to, to do all these things, but they are doing their best to keep looking after their patients, um, you know, within the tight sort of restrictions that that are surrounding them so you know please pray for them a lot of them are christians yeah many absolutely. of them not not all not all of them are but many of them are so mm. uh yeah it's a it's a difficult world out there and in some ways i'm glad that <laughs> i'm glad that i'm being spared from all this you're benched for the moment <laughs> that's right mm. i get to sit this one out yeah yeah well thanks again for your time jareth it was it's no been worries. a pleasure and yeah, yeah definitely likewise. be praying for you and your family and everybody Thank you. else thanks Appreciate that. Bit of talk.